Hey everyone, thanks so much for coming back to watch another one of my videos. I really appreciate you coming. So I'm excited to jump back into the golden era of the Mafia, which is way before, like, the 90s. So this mobster that we're going to look at today was born in 1929, and that's a perfect timetable as far as the Mafia goes, so I'm excited to tell you about him. Joseph Crazy Joe Gallo was born April 7th, 1929 in Brooklyn, and his parents were Mary and Umberto Gallo. They came from Torre del Greco in Naples. They came to the U.S. by boat in 1920. His father was a Prohibition-era bootlegger, and their father expected his three sons to follow in his footsteps in his life of crime. They also had two daughters, Carmela and Jackie. Umberto made a living carving religious figures out of stone. When Prohibition hit, he made a lot of money selling homemade booze, and he backed a major loan sharking operation, and that made him even more money, so he had a lot of money. And with the profits of all of that, he bought a restaurant. Usually mobsters' nicknames are sarcastic or funny monikers of their personality. But in Gallo's case, it seems pretty on the money. He was diagnosed as schizophrenic when he was 20 years old after he was arrested. And he showed up in court in a black zoot suit and he laughed right in the judge's face. His laugh was so bizarre that the judge had him sent to be institutionalized. He was temporarily admitted to Kings County Hospital Center in Brooklyn, and that's where he was formally diagnosed with schizophrenia. Shortly after graduating high school, he got into a car accident where he bumped his head really bad, and that led to him having a nervous tick. With his father involved in the mafia and a mental illness that took away a lot of the fear and caution that most people use to stay law-abiding citizens, Crazy Joe was rising quickly in the New York crime families. He rose through the ranks as an enforcer and a hitman for the Profaci crime family. The Profaci crime family later came to be known as the Colombo family. Later, he formed a crew with his two brothers, Albert Kid Blast Gallo and Larry Gallo, called the Cockroach Gang. Later, they became known as the President Street Boys. He and his two best friends would often rob stores and come home sharing the swag that they obtained with their friends. He never got any treatment for the schizophrenia that he was diagnosed with. And if that tick was real, that's a traumatic brain injury, and he was never treated for that either. This led Gallo to have an explosive personality. When people would fall behind with payments, he would come in and say, I'm a paranoid schizophrenic, no telling what I'll do. Those men always paid. Gallo joined the Navy in 1948. He got kicked out six months later for emotional immaturity, which really just meant that he couldn't get on board with taking orders and being given criticism in basic training. Anyway, he got out six months later and he started working rackets under Frankie Schatz Abata Marco, who was a Bensonhurst bookie and alongside the Garfields, a frenemy gang, which included Carmine Persico. Abata Marco ran the Profaci family operations in Brooklyn. Once Gallo became of an acceptable age, he continued with his duties as an enforcer for the family, but he also became a hitman as well. He and his crew had an apartment on President Street in Brooklyn. They called this the dormitory, and that's where they all congregated. It's like a base of operations. At this apartment, Gallo kept 
Cleo, his pet lion in the basement. And things like this is why he was called crazy. This man was a savage and had absolutely no problem killing people. But he was also pretty savvy as far as being a business owner went. He owned multiple businesses and he did it secretly because his criminal life was pretty public. He didn't want it to interfere with the success of the companies that he owned. He owned a bunch of nightclubs in Manhattan and two sweatshops in the garment district. On October 25th, 1957, Joe Gallo was 28 years old and he was working under Joe Profaci. Profaci had ascended to the boss of the family, which is why it was called the Profaci family. And Gallo was his hitman at the time. So Profaci asked Gallo to complete a task that had been in the works for a while now. And this is really sad for me to say. At the time, Albert Anastasio was the boss of the Anastasia family, which would later come to be known as the Gambino family. Vito Genovese, who is the worst human being in the world ever to live, wanted to take out Anastasia so he could take over the family. He knew that he couldn't kill the leader of his family, who was Frank Costello, without also killing Anastasia because Anastasia was really close with Frank Costello. Anastasia was the leader of Murder, Inc. And Anastasia was crazy. Of course, Genovese was too much of a coward to do anything himself, so he reached out to Joe Profaci to ask for help for the assassination. Profaci handed the baton to his hitman, Joe Gallo. Joe Gallo and Carmine Persico entered the Park Sheridan Hotel on October 25th and killed Albert Anastasia with a hailstorm of bullets. This was a huge, huge headline-grabbing mafia hit. The murderers were never officially charged, but the NYPD came to the conclusion that Genovese ordered the hit, and they didn't really care who actually did the hit. Genovese had this plan and was trying to execute it for a very, very, very long time. He got impatient, though, and he hired Vincent Gigante to kill Frank Costello on May 2nd, 1957. I don't know what Genovese's plan was here. He knew Anastasia would come for him, but he did it anyway. To put the cherry on top, Gigante didn't even succeed. He attempted to kill Costello outside of his apartment. He shot him, but it didn't kill him. But it scared Costello enough that he relinquished control of the family over to Genovese in order to avoid any further assassination attempts. And you would think he really didn't need to kill Anastasia from there, but at the end of the day, he had been whispering to Carlo Gambino that Gambino would be given the position that Anastasia was in. So he really didn't have a choice there, they both had to go. He had to work to put Carlo Gambino in that position, and plus he just didn't like Anastasia, so he reached out to Perfacci to help him. Now, this might be one of the biggest things that Joe Gallo is known for. Persico often joked that he was part of Gallo's barbershop quintet, so it's pretty clear that Gallo was the ringleader of the attack. He planned it, and he executed it, and it was done perfectly. Perfacci had Joe and Larry Gallo sworn in as made men after this hit, which is a pretty big deal. It was a pretty controversial move too. A lot of fellow mobsters didn't want him to be made, but he did still end up going through with it and making him a made man. The next year, in 1958, Joe Gallo and his two brothers were called to Washington, D.C. to testify at the McClellan Committee Trials. 
Robert F. Kennedy led the committee. Gallo somehow knew that Kennedy was really easy to trigger. So when he was called to testify in front of the committee, he was kind of nuts. He flirted with Kennedy's secretary, and he told Kennedy that his carpet would be an excellent place for a dice game. So that that's super ballsy to come into a senator's office and tell him, hey, I could do an illegal act here really well. Like, the balls. <laughs> Gallo and his brothers didn't provide any useful information to the committee, not that anybody expected them to. But during this broadcast testimony, Gallo became a household name. When he pled the fifth, his exact words were, I respectfully decline to answer because I honestly believe my answer might tend to incriminate me. He wouldn't answer anything. When he was sworn in, they asked, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God? Joe answered, sure. When Kennedy responded with, pardon me? Like, what? He answered, I do, with a roll of his eyes. And he lit a cigarette. He looked into a camera the entire time that he uttered this sentence over and over and over again with a big smile on his face. And from that point on, Gallo was a star. Media outlets discussed his fashion choices, his antics with Kennedy's secretary were gossiped about, and his smirk was rebroadcast over and over and over again. The entire world was enamored by this guy. In 1960, Gallo married Jeffy Lee Boyd. She was a Las Vegas showgirl. They met when Gallo was hanging around a jazz club. So outside of the Anastasia murder, this may be what Gallo is most well known for. On February 27th, 1961, Gallo and his brothers kidnapped four of the top men in the Profaci family. Joe Profaci was supposed to be part of the group that was kidnapped, but... I guess he caught wind of it somehow, and he jetted. He took off to Florida to avoid being kidnapped. Larry and Albert Gallo sent Joe to California so that they could handle the hostage situation. Joe wanted to kill one of the hostages and demand $100,000 before negotiations even began, but Larry overruled him. None of the hostages were killed. Joe Profaci, along with his consigliere Charles the Sige Lochitro, made a deal for the peaceful surrender of the hostages after they had held them in captivity for weeks. Like, it was a really long time that they kept these men. During negotiations to give the hostages back, Profaci agreed that he was going to keep the peace as long as everybody is kept safe. But on August 20th, 1961, he ordered the murder of Larry Gallo and Joseph Joe Jelly. He was a member of the Gallo crew. Joe Jelly was invited fishing and he was murdered on the lake. Carmine Persico, who had killed Anastasio with Joe Gallo, attempted to strangle Larry to death. An NYPD officer had just so happened to be there and he intervened and Larry lived. But this started a whole new thing because Persico had previously been on Gallo's side against Perfacci. Once he tried to kill Larry, the Gallos started calling Persico the snake and that nickname stuck. So he was known as Carmine the Snake Persico and he absolutely hated the nickname. This battle led to a gang war that came to be known as the First Colombo War. Nine people were murdered and three people went missing. The Gallo crew hid in the dormitory while war raged on the streets. So pretty much they hid while everybody else was fighting over the problem that they caused. In November of 1961, Gallo was convicted of conspiracy and extortion for attempting to extort money from a businessman. He was sentenced to 7 to 14 years in prison. 
The sentence was served. Gallo refused to say one word throughout his entire defense. The whole trial, he refused to say one word. He did refer to the ATA as you dirty rats, but that was it. The trial only lasted three days and the jury really quickly found him guilty. While he was on trial, 14 members of his crew were arrested for consorting with criminals. In other words, they literally got arrested for hanging out with each other because the criminals were each other. Gallo sued the state after his time at Greenhaven Correctional Facility. He said that the guards inflicted cruel and unusual punishment on him because he allowed an African-American barber to cut his hair. Gallo became very enmeshed with the African-American population in prison, and that posed a problem because there's a very strict color coding system in prison, especially at that time. But honestly, at the end of the day, the guards retaliating against him was probably the least of his problems, but he couldn't do anything about anybody else. When he got out of prison, he was stick thin. He looked sick. His skin was hanging off his face. He was emaciated. Someone said that he looked like he had been on a decade-long hunger strike. He had actually lost all that weight because after his association with fellow African-American prisoners, the Aryan Nation prisoners put actual human feces into any food that was served to Gallo. So he just stopped eating for a long, long time. While he was at Auburn Correctional Facility, there was a massive prison riot. Gallo ended up rescuing a severely wounded CO, and that CO ended up testifying for him at his parole hearing. And a fellow prisoner, Donald Francos, had also testified there as well. And he said that Gallo was articulate and had excellent verbal skills, being able to describe gouging a man's guts out with the same eloquent ease as he used discussing classical literature. While he was in prison, his brother Larry Gallo passed passed away from cancer. Jeffy divorced him and she went on to marry a rich Englishman and the world changed drastically. His reputation had also grown a lot and at this point he was a celebrity. A movie was made whose main character was known to be based on him. It was named The Gang That Couldn't Shoot Straight. And his already existing notoriety from the committee trials, from everything that he had done underground. And it all made Gallo a straight up household name. Everybody in the world knew who Joe Gallo was. Now he gets out of prison and Jeffy hears about this. She had divorced him. He was gone for, I think, over 10 years. But as soon as she hears that he got out, she goes running. <laughs> Screw the Englishman, she's going for Gallo. And they got remarried, and they moved into an apartment in Greenwich Village. Another huge, earth-shattering thing that happened while Gallo was in prison is that Joe Perfacci ended up dying of cancer as well. This was a pretty big deal since Perfacci and the Gallos had some serious issues for a really, really long time. Joseph Magliocho, the underboss that they had kidnapped, became the new boss of the family. And also on May 19th, 1963, the Gallo hit team shot Persico multiple times. He ended up surviving, but the rift between the Gallo crew and what would come to be known as the Colombo family, it wasn't going anywhere. 
Later in 1963, the Gallows made peace with Magliocho and Persico's faction through negotiations that were facilitated by the Patriarca family. But when Gallo got out of jail, he said, well, the peace agreement doesn't apply to me because I was in prison when it was made. Colombo took control of the family and he, with Joseph Iacovelli, tried to sit down with Gallo and offer him $1,000 to abide by the peace agreement that was made while he was in prison. But Gallo demanded $100,000 to settle it. Colombo absolutely refused. On June 28, 1971, Joseph Colombo was shot three times in Columbus Circle in Manhattan. And this happened during the second Unity Day rally. The shooter was Jerome Johnson. Colombo did survive, but he was paralyzed for the rest of his life and pretty much in a vegetative state, which is so sad. The police obviously investigated, but after extensive investigation, they concluded that Johnson worked on his own, but nobody in the underground believed that for a second. Every Everybody knew that Joe Gallo had something to do with this shooting. Everyone in the Colombo family believed that Gallo ordered the hit, especially since he was yelling about how he was going to kill all the Columbos almost immediately after getting out of jail. And let's be honest, 9 out of 10 chance, he did do it. When Gallo remarried Jeffy, they moved into an apartment on 14th Street in Manhattan. One night, Gallo had a really bad problem with his tooth, and it just so happened that there was a dentist that worked on the ground floor of the building that they had moved into. In the dentist's office, Sina Essary worked. Gallo had instantly fallen in love. He had hearts in front of his eyes, and, you know, his eyes were bugging out of his head like in the cartoons. He just instantly fell for this girl. He considered her, like, beauty pageant contestant beautiful. She also just so happened to live in the same building, and she lived in the penthouse apartment. So Gallo and Cena obviously start dating. Gallo lived on the 14th floor. Cena lived in the penthouse on the 21st floor. So Gallo would go to the 14th floor and spend time with Jeffy. And then he'd just go up to the 21st floor and spend time with Cena. He had both his girls in one building. Now, while all of this is going on, Jeffy does know that Gallo is having an affair. Cena grew up in the South and Jeffy would refer to her as Joey's hillbilly hua. It angered her to no end that he was seeing her. Obviously, that's her husband. Santa was having her apartment paid for by her sugar daddy. (coughs) I mean, employer, the dentist. Gallo regularly beat Jeffy. So Jeffy comes home one day and there's a moving truck outside the building. And she notices like, hey, that's my dresser. What the hell is going on? Everything of hers had been loaded onto this moving truck. When she confronts the movers, he says he was instructed to load everything that she owned onto the truck and move it to California. He walks away from his apartment, took all his stuff and moved upstairs into the penthouse to live with Cena and her 10-year-old daughter, Lisa pretty much the day that he got rid of Jeffy. The dentist stopped paying the rent, but honestly, he was lucky that Gallo let him live. As soon as Gallo's divorce to Jeffy was finalized, he and Sina got married. Sina said that the only time that Gallo ever lost his temper with her was when she accepted a package that he thought was actually a bomb. Gallo was that day and age's John Gotti. He was the only mobster in New York at the time that would show up in society pages. And with his fashion sense and his personality, 
personality. He was known to be tough and so, so cool. He wrote poetries, he wrote raps, and he wanted to manage jazz performers. He painted and art world aristocracy chased after his work. On his 43rd birthday on April 7th, 1972, he went out with Sena, his bodyguard Peter Pete the Greek Diopolis, Diopolis's girlfriend Edith Russo, and Gallo's sister Carmela, all headed to Umberto's clam house at around 4.30 in the morning. Gallo and Pete the Greek were sitting with their backs towards the door. Somebody came in and shot Gallo multiple times. Pete the Greek was also shot, but he was only shot in the hip and he did survive. Gallo flipped the table over so that Sena and her daughter wouldn't get caught in the hailstorm of bullets that were being rained upon him. He actually ended up walking away and he took the hailstorm of bullets with him and away from his family. Everybody that was there said that he walked away from the table to make sure that while they were shooting at him, they weren't going to shoot his family. As soon as he saw them coming, he tried to reach for his firearm, but he just didn't have time. It was too quick. It happened in a split second and he didn't have a chance to grab his firearm. He had already been shot about 20 times before he even had a chance to go into his hip. He walked out of the door and died on the sidewalk right outside Umberto's. He was officially pronounced dead shortly after 5.30 in the morning at Beekman Downtown Hospital. Now, this is one of the most famous mafia deaths ever to happen. Especially given his notoriety, everybody was so eager to hear every piece of information that came out regarding this murder. It is very, very, very widely speculated who actually did this to Gallo. Of course, the consensus is it's the Columbos in retaliation for Gallo shooting Joe Colombo. The police suspect that there was actually only one shooter, And this is based on crime scene reconstruction and eyewitness testimony. But the police put out a fake story to the media saying that there was three shooters. Now, this made it a lot easier for them to sift through any claims, anyone that wanted to say that they did it to get notoriety. They immediately dismissed any claims or confessions of the crime that were claimed to be more than one shooter. Coincidentally, one of the people that were at Umberto's at that ungodly hour at 4.30 in the morning when Gallo was shot was an anonymous man that went on to become a New York Times editor. He claims that Frank Sheeran, a hitman and a labor union boss, was actually the shooter. But yeah, this New York Times editor claims that it was him, Frank Sheeran, that carried out the hit. Sheeran corroborated this. He gave a deathbed confession to being the lone gunman to kill Gallo. Jerry Capici, who is a journalist and a mafia expert, and I've cited him quite a few times in my videos, he went to Umberto's to report on Gallo's murder. He wasn't there beforehand, but he went there to report for the New York Post. He thinks Sheeran was the killer as well. I have a feeling that the same way that all of the information came out about like Luciano and Anastasia, it came out like this year or last year. One day, sometime soon, the paperwork for Joe Gallo's death is gonna come out from the FBI. The FBI is gonna release it and some groundbreaking information is going to be in it that they just never released to the public. But it looks like more than likely it was the Columbus. Now, the Gallo crew wanted revenge. Carmela told Joe's body in his casket that the streets would run red with blood. 
Albert Gallo sent a hitman to a Manhattan restaurant to kill Iacovelli, Alphonse Persico, and Gennaro Langella, who were all dining there. But the gunman was from Las Vegas, he wasn't from the mafia, and he didn't recognize the members of the family. He ended up shooting four innocent diners that were completely uninvolved in any crime family, and two of them ended up dying. This war lasted from 1971 to 1975, and it led to the Colombo family kind of like splitting down the middle, and half went to the actual family, the, you know, Persico led, and the other half went with the, the Gallo crew, because the Gallo crew is huge. The commission negotiated a deal where Albert Gallo and the rest of his crew were able to join the Genovese family, and they did this peacefully. It ended the four-year war that most people within the families called the Gallo Wars. Since nobody's left to run the family, Persico just continues to run it from prison. Persico got out of jail in 1979, but goes right back in. <laughs> as soon as he got out, he got sent right back for conspiracy, racketeering, all the mafia charges he got charged with in 1981 so he had literally been out of prison for two years and he got another five years a movie was written in 1974 called crazy joe so this was literally about him it wasn't based on him it was about him a song which it was 12 verses it, it's more like a ballad it was written by bob dylan it was named joey and it was all about joe gallo sebastian maniscalco plays joe gallo in the irishman Santa Essary now lives on a farm in Nashville where she rescues thoroughbred horses. She's currently writing a biography. After witnessing Gallo's death, she said that she has PTSD and flinches every time a car backfires, which is completely understandable. Like, that might be one of the most traumatic things that can happen for somebody that is not involved in criminal enterprises. You know, this girl probably has never even heard a gunshot, and all of a sudden you're sitting there and your husband is being gunned down in a restaurant. So that's the story of this absolute savage of a man, Joseph Crazy Joey Gallo. Thanks so much for tuning in. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, do all the things. And I hope you come back next time. Thanks so much. Bye.